Robert. Hello. How are you guys? Hey, hey, Robert. What's going on? Uh, Just so you know, we're already recording, but this is just generally how we start these things. There's no intro, so and then we cut in wherever. But uh, cold open. Yeah, cold open always. That's what we're known for. Yeah. It's true. No, you guys, it's like you start in the middle of a sentence. That's right. It's your thing. It is our thing. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I am, uh, you know, Shadi and I were going to at first be in the, in the room when we did this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like at, by the time I had this, like an 11 o'clock meeting this morning, I realized I was losing my voice a little bit. I don't know if you can hear it. I'm like really up close to the microphone. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, I was just like, and I was like, yeah, Shadi, you know, I feel free, <laughs> but, uh, but there might be, uh, I'm, I might be losing my voice. So, you know, it's, it's the age of Rona. You gotta be, you gotta be extra cautious. Yeah. I decided as much as I want to see Demir, um, <laughs> I, I decided that uh, COVID wasn't worth it. Yeah. That's a good bet. Yeah. Well, hey, Demir, just one thing. Can we get Robert's levels up a little bit? Uh, I can, he can also come up closer to the microphone cause he's actually fine here. He's just a little distant there. Wait, you can see okay. him? No, I can't see him, but I can I can tell. <laughs> can see my my bar. Yeah, yeah, I can see his bar, his dancing bar. It's kind of weird. I, I can't believe I'm on Wisdom of Crowds podcast. This is this is like a dream come true. Well, so so before before Shadi does his spiel and and uh, and uh, introduces you properly to our listeners, I got to say, I mean, I saw you last on on that Zoom where we had a reunion. Uh, meeting uh, mm-hmm. after our trip last year, but mm-hmm. I have to say, Robert, that trip remains so memorable to me. And you know, we can mm-hmm. we can reminisce li- later. But just, it's really a pleasure to have you on here because uh, that. I mean, I feel like trips like that are trips that that make friendships. And even though mm-hmm. we haven't we haven't seen each other since then, it's it, it's I'm I was so thrilled that you're you're joining us here. And uh, I it's just again uh, great to have you on. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember when we, uh, when, when you discussed, I remember we actually where we were sitting, we were, I think we were in Galilee in the North and you, one of you mentioned, you know, we were thinking about doing a podcast together. Well, I remember saying, you know, yes, you know, you know that who, needs to happen. You know who did that, Robert? That was actually Megan McArdle. She, she, she said, oh, basically right. we were on a bus. Um, yeah, maybe in the Galilee and Megan McArdle at some point, I don't know, Shadi and I were arguing about something. He said, you two get a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that that's literally how this all started. That's when the like we we weren't really thinking about something like this. But oh, then okay. Megan on the bus because of the trip that we were on with you, that's where the idea came about because we thought, "Hey, people like listening to us bullshit in the back of the bus <laughs> on these trips. Why don't we just do it in real life on a regular basis?" And this and then the rest is history. Yeah. That's pretty, kind of amazing. It is. Actually. So so that's it's cool. it's a, it's a it's a real treat, and it feels very fitting that you're here with us. We still haven't had Megan on, which is actually a deep and abiding shame because I I, I want we had I had her on at the American Interest. We did a, about an hour, but we actually haven't had her on the Wisdom of Crowds, and we have to really actually rectify that shortly. Definitely. But um, so, anyway, Shadi, do 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 the introductions for us. Yeah, because sometimes when we have guests, we forget to introduce them, so <laughs> so it's important for us to to remember this part. But uh, yeah, we are very happy to have you, uh, Robert Nicholson, the founder and president of the Philos Project, which is really a great organization, and it's really been a pleasure and honor to be involved in in some of in in some of the organization's work over the past two years or so. And we'll make sure to include the um, a link to the to, to the website in the show notes, just so if if you guys, our dear listeners, want to learn more about what Robert and the Philos Project do. You can find out. Um, Robert's also the former publisher slash co-editor of Providence Magazine. Is that more or less how you would mm-hmm. describe your former yes, position? Yes, exactly. You yeah, which which I've also written for. So uh, yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's great to have you, Robert. And one of the reasons we were really excited um, to talk to you and, and kind of hang out um, in this virtual way is because. You came back from a really interesting um, trip. I guess maybe you'd call it a fact-finding trip um, in uh, in Minneapolis, where you visited the site of George Floyd's murder. You met with um, a black community leaders, particularly in the black church, 
which is an interesting perspective that we don't always hear in the um, in the mainstream media. And you sent us an email when you came back from the trip. I don't know how many people got the email, but I felt very special nonetheless. And um, it was a you, small group, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So you know, I read some of these points, and I'm like, okay, this is good stuff, and um, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe before you know, how, tell us a little bit about the trip. Yeah. So the Philos project, as as you ref, as you mentioned, it's it's really focused. I mean, the mission is um, promoting positive Christian engagement in the near East, right? So everything I do happens elsewhere. You know, my, my work starts at the beach and goes forward. And I have to say that I've, I haven't been sad about that, uh, for the last, you know, we've started in 2014 and, you know, whether it's, you know, abortion debates or, you know, marriage debates or any kind of political dispute that takes place in this country, uh, happens without me having to engage it for the most part, right? I engage it personally and I follow it and I'll make you know comments on social media, but I don't have to weigh in professionally, which is wonderful. Uh, you know, it's, it's nice to, to focus on other people's problems, which is, which is pretty much what it boils down to. But, you know, this happened and immediately it felt, it felt different. I think, you know, with the backdrop of the pandemic and just, I mean, you remember when, when George Floyd was murdered, I mean, it was just such a, a nadir in, in, in American life, right? I think we were all just, uh, I mean, if something like that didn't happen, it almost had to happen. Uh, and I, that, that was, that feeling was exacerbated more by the large uh, African, uh, African-American leadership network we have at Philo. So a lot of what we do in engaging with the Near East is we try to we try to, you know, engage with communities that don't typically um, connect with what's happening in Lebanon or Egypt or Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so we have a whole program focused on uh, African-American leadership within the church, but also some uh, beyond the church. And I start getting calls, right, text messages from people saying, you know, what do you think? Are you going to make a statement? Is Philos uh, going to play a role here? And we've done quite a bit in the African-American community, but it always has to do either with uh, the Near East or with training young black leaders here in the U.S. We're always looking for kind of young talent and we put them through different programs and, and stuff like that. And I have to be honest, to the, to the first few text messages and emails, I, I responded, the, you know, with with more or less what I what I said before about, look, this it really isn't our issue. This isn't, it's not our mission. There's, it's a real stretch to say that Philos is going to engage with it. But we, we had a, we had a call with some of our kind of inner circle of African-American advisors. And it was very clear that not only did they want us to do something because they thought that we ought to, but they wanted us to do something because they thought we could actually accomplish something, which was a little bit shocking, right? To have people in the African-American community on this call telling me, you know, we need philos. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, why? Why Why on earth would, would you ask me? I mean, I know more about, you know, the police system in Jerusalem than I do about my own city where I live, you know. But they persisted, and Luke, uh, Luke Moon, our, my deputy director at the Philos Project, had a great idea. He said, you know, what do we do when we deal with conflict abroad? We do a fact-finding trip. Right? We have this buzzword, a very Christian buzzword at, at Philos, we call it incarnational advocacy. Right, It's hmm. our approach to, to conflict is to show up and actually walk around and talk to people. That's, that has to be the first stage of any engagement because otherwise you have no idea what you're talking about. And Luke says, why, why couldn't we just do a fact-finding trip? And so you know, I'm thinking, wow, that's actually something I can do. So I found, uh, you know, about 10, 12 people, half black Christians, half white Christians. And we took this trip and it was, it was a phenomenal trip and really not only I think changed all of us, but changed, changed me in, in the way that I think about these things. So I was really glad that, that we did it. So Robert, you know, the, what, what strikes me when you're, you're saying that, I mean, um, I'm a foreign policy guy too. Uh, shoddy, shoddy's, you know, not, not quite as pigeonholed as, as I am on, on sort of that. Um, you're pigeonholed Demir. 
Well, I, I don't know. I feel I feel a little <laughs> bit. I feel a little bit sometimes. Not pigeonholed. Maybe I self pigeonhole, or at least I self self categorize or something like that. But it really struck me. You know, I don't know. Whatever. It's Twitter, and it's sort of dumb. But it, it's just you know all the sort of the sideshow, quite frankly, uh, that's that's happening on Twitter and some of these debates that are cultural and broader, but also narrower than than what's actually in what I want to discuss with you. But you know. I, I, I took a break yesterday because uh, there were protests happening um, in Serbia. And mm. so I followed the Balkans and I tweeted something like, okay, pull your heads out of this sort of, you know, parochial debate about uh, wokeism and stuff like that. And we don't have to really deal with that because it's a, it's a whole separate kettle of fish. I don't think it's really that relevant to what I want to talk to you about. But I said, hey, look at this sort of stuff that's happening. And I got a couple of tweets, and I have to say I got my back up because I didn't say in my tweet anything like, um, anything like, oh, you know, look at this brutality. And it was. It was like cops just beating some people, like with right. truncheons, you know. But and, and to be fair, my, my sort of interest in that is has to do more with uh, the fragility of the regime there and what may or may not happen, where, of course, violence is deplorable and horrible there. I also know it's a very complicated situation on the ground and the protests and the motivations and all of it. It's, 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 it's complicated. As you know, when you do mm-hmm. foreign policy, you sort of get into these weeds. But a lot of people, well, a lot, a small group of people jumped at me and sort of were like, yeah, you know, we've got this going on at home. And I was like, well, give me some credit. Of course I do know. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it was, it was an interesting moment that, you know, it, it's sort of what you were just saying resonated with me. It's like, I, I, I don't do domestic stuff. And in a way, there's a, there's a comfort to dealing with other people's problems. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a comforting distance. And it has been interesting watching, um, yeah, you know, this this whole uh, crisis unfold and it's my country. And there is a there is a sense of like, you know, I, I, I went to some some of the protests here in D.C. early on when they were still was still intense and and uh, and, and violent, you know. And uh, yeah, I don't know if it, it, it was it was disorienting. I, I felt like I was I, I had already built in a kind of distance to what was going on just by being here in D.C. and watching this sort of stuff. So I, it's, you know, I look forward to talking more about the trip, but just just wanted to jump in there with what you said earlier, uh, how, how resonant that was for me. Yeah, and also, like, you know, from my standpoint, uh, you know, as someone who's lived in the Middle East and has focused on ideological polarization there, you know, as you have, Robert, there, there's something there's something weird um, and disorienting about sort of importing debates about ethnic or religious identity to the home front where the intensity and the existential tenor of debate, it reminds me of what I saw and heard during the mm-hmm. Arab Spring where, um, you know, obviously it's not as bad in this, insofar as we haven't seen, thank God, yet mass violence. I mean, there is violence, but it's still at a relatively minimal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully that will continue for the foreseeable future. But it's the it it's this sense of living in parallel universes. So in you know in Egypt or Jordan or whatever, you would talk to an Islamist and they would see the world in one particular way. A secularist would seem would seem like they were living in a completely different country. And if you don't have ways to channel that level of disagreement and really foundational mm-hmm. foundational gaps between citizens it it can lead to violence and obviously our system so far is able to absorb those um, divides and tensions and incorporate them into the democratic process peacefully for the most part but you know there there is this sense that the middle east is not just something over there or ide- ideological polarization is becoming the universal condition is mm-hmm. that, is that is that fair to say? Yeah. No, I think that, um, you know, one thing that all of this, you know, these last four months has reminded me is just how much of an anomaly the last 70 years have been, right, in this country. I mean, even, even I mean, we know the Jim Crow era extended pretty deep into the 20th century, right? And some of the things that happened under that regime that we don't talk about that much uh, weren't all that long ago. Right. And, and then there was this period where it seemed like, OK, you know, this is history has ended. We're in this sort of parentheses. But 
you feel all of that crumbling. And, and up until now, you know, I think there, there is a tendency, even an unconscious one on my part to, um, to, 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 to sort of look at the Middle East in a, in a condescending way. I mean, I'll just say it that way, right? Boy, if these guys could, could really just figure it out, like, like we have now, I say over and over again, that that's not what I think. And I don't think that's what I think, but I guarantee you that is at some level what I'm thinking. And you start to see some of uh, exactly what you're talking about, right? Some of the unraveling and not just at a level of political disagreement, because we've seen that in the last 70 years, right? There's certainly been, you know, problems with Nixon and I mean, Bill Clinton during the nineties, right? There's been these various scandals and, and things, but such a disparity in worldview is new for America, right? And I do think that if you're going to talk about this this moment and really do it justice, you have to acknowledge that this isn't just a matter of, you know, a couple of laws that need to be changed or, you know, a, a, a president we don't like or a president we want. I mean, there's a deep divide in this country that isn't, as you say, foundational in terms of people looking at the exact same facts, the same sets of set of events and seeing completely different things. And I think that came to light uh, as well on the trip, right? People, so I have, I, I'm kind of watching this living laboratory, right? 10 black guys, 10 white guys, and some girls on both sides also, uh, just walking into these situations. And I know that during the, the, the talk that they're getting or the experience that they're having, they're, they're, they're living in two completely different spheres. And then it comes out in the discussion that follows. It's really fascinating and also really disturbing. And, and what would you say was most striking in what stood out to you about the, the gap in perception between the black participants and the white participants? I mean, it's worth it's worth emphasizing that I think almost all the participants in this trip shared a kind of um, Christian orientation. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, there was already some common ground. So did that temper some of the divides or were you sort of taken aback that, hey, th- this is the the gulf here is still pretty large. So that's a, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, and I, you and I have talked quite a bit, Shadi, about, you know, the, the power of religion, you know, to, to shape in different ways, all of these different debates, right? Something that many people in the secular world just discount altogether as, you know, the, the feeble fantasies of the irrational, you know, we believe, I certainly do that religion you know, if it's not everything, it's, it's most everything. And what I'm talking about is, you know, what people believe to be true about the world. And what's interesting about this group is that if you put them all in separate rooms and you gave them, let's say, a quiz on uh, Christian doctrine, right? It's a statement of faith. Check this box if you believe this point and this point and this point independently of each other. They would all submit quizzes that were virtually the same. They're all Protestants of one kind or another. Um, we, we had invited some people from the Catholic community. It didn't work out for various reasons. But, um, you know, they come from different churches and denominations. But by and large, they believe exactly the same thing doctrinally. But they could not have been more different because of the historical, cultural, sociological differences between them. I mean, you're, you're talking about more or less white evangelical Protestants and, and black Protestants. And I would say that while, while that religious backdrop 100% tempered some of the kind of the latent tension, 100%, and, and that's a whole kind of maybe topic on its own, but there, were st- there was still kind of a, a great gulf fixed between these two groups. And I think that you saw it in different ways, right? One was just the posture coming in. You know, the, the white community came in kind of timid, right? What are we in for? What is this? Are they going to, is this about hating white people? You know, or what exactly are we going to see? Uh, and for many of them, you know, and I didn't, I didn't take a survey, but I, I would wager that for at least half of the people, the, the white folks we brought, this was the first time that I've ever sat for a couple of days and had like a really substantive conversation with, with black Christians on the black side, they came in to be honest, if I had to describe it in a word, they were exhausted. Their, the look on their face, their body language, they were coming in thinking like, okay, another you know, dialogue session. We're going to talk about 
you know, how much we share and how much we need to move forward. But let's be honest, nothing's going to change. These people don't care. They're not willing to really interrogate their own role in this. And so from day one, I mean, the first dinner on, there was this disparity just in, in the attitude. I think also there was a, um, there was on, on the part of the white community, I think, you know, the one question I've heard from a lot of people after I've come back and talked about it is after I, you know, they listen to me explain the trip very politely and somewhere near the end, they say something like, okay, that all sounds great, but what do they want? And by they, they mean black people, you know, capital B, capital P. What do black people want? Like, what are they asking for? Do they want to destroy the country and, you know, burn effigies of George Washington? Or are we just talking about a few laws? And so I think in the white community, there was this feeling of, it was a dilemma, really, of, of both deeply wanting to do something, right, to absolve themselves of whatever guilt, you know, if they felt any uh, that they had. And a feeling that if they start walking down this road, you know, next thing they know, they'll be asked to start pulling down statues. And so I think the white community or the the black community, I think more than anything else, wanted to be heard and validated with no. Yeah, but well, well, no, but what about what about the you know absentee fathers or what about the black on black crime or just to hear to be heard and get validated? The white community was looking for a foothold to do something that did not involve, you know, burning down Washington, D.C. And that was that was very apparent throughout, just in terms of the questions they asked and the conversations they were having with each other. Well, there's a lot of things that you can do outside of burning down Washington, D.C., so that's pretty good, I guess. <laughs> but but um, well, let, me, let me try and sort of formulate this. The... the, the um, the exhaustion um, that that Black Americans are feeling, uh, and and partly with the whole sort of you know process of reconciliation, were there were there any older? I mean, presumably in in as in the fact finding mission, uh, you you met uh, older African Americans, older Black people who had been, mm-hmm. um, but who had lived through the Civil Rights era, mm-hmm. um, and who. Were they able to reflect about, you know, the promise and the hope of that and then the disappointments and then the stagnation is really, I mean, the statistics, when you look at it, it's, 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 um, from the breakthrough and then from all the attempts to address these things through policy, it, it, it really doesn't seem to have moved the needle on, on metrics, never mind mm-hmm. on th- measurable things like racism and, you know, but how it, 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 it manifests in society and things you can measure. Did you talk to older folks and, and mm-hmm. did you have a sense of, of how they're approaching it apart from wanting to be heard and validated? Because that's, you know, obviously dignity, understanding, et cetera, that's important. But was there a sense of like sort of historical perspective? Because I, it's one thing just to finish my thought here. It's even when I talk to basically boomers that, that, you know, like came of age in, in a lot of this, it's, it's, it's a, it's it's not that this is the same thing but it's it's a feeling that that basically it's this horrific tragic story in America that just won't go away and is increasingly it's just it's 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 a millstone that there's no way to ameliorate it and i, I and i just wonder you know if you talk to older people how are they perceiving this today and 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 how does it sort of reflect through history like that well, it's interesting, and I think it, it kind of answers the question in a way that that I told you people have been asking me, which is, you know, what do, what do they want? Uh, the, the answer is obviously the different things, right? It's not a monolith. The black community is incredibly diverse, but they do share, uh, let's say, a collective memory. And in that sense, I think they're they're much closer to being members of a nation, uh, kind of a nation within a nation, than they are the way that most people think about black people, which is just as people. Right. So there's an inverse correlation almost between the success of the American dream and the feeling of uh, identity crisis in the black community. Right. The more that their identity is expected to dissolve. Right. OK, everything's kind of working now. Civil rights era is over. We're, you know, each year gets better and better. OK, so at some point here we're going to be done and you can just go back to just being regular Americans. It's the same threat that's posed when black Americans, some black Americans here 
white people say, you know, I don't see color because for black people, they say, well, look, you know, it's, that's, that's good. Like, I don't want you definitely to, to prejudice uh, your opinion of me based on, um, you know, what color I am, but you, I would like for you to recognize that there is a special case here, right. With, with the black community, we're not just Hispanics or Asians or there was, a, there was a very unique story that needs to be recognized. So the validation, I would say, it, it, it's, it's a point that shouldn't be lost only because I think for white Americans, it means, okay, yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to hear you and okay, let's get, let's get down to business to assimilating you in this wonderful melting pot. Part of this validation needs to be done collectively. I think that's where you get people going out and demanding reparations and, and all of that. Now, how that's done, that's a whole different topic. But there does need to be, I think, kind of an extra step uh, from people from the white community as they try to acknowledge and validate this. But with to answer your question, we did talk, you know, the, the kind of our guide, if you will, was this. I mean, this guy was like legendary. His name's uh, Spike Moss. You should look at look him up. He's in Minneapolis. This guy, he's 75 years old. He looks like he's like 60. Um, former boxer. This guy is like not even real. He, he was a mentor to Prince. He mentored all these other musical acts coming out of Minneapolis. He's been a civil rights leader for, you know, he, years, years and years from going way, way back, like 60s. Grew up, was born and raised in like the backwoods of Missouri and opened in our opening dinner. He actually, you know, talking about the changes over time. He talked, he grew up in Jim Crow South. Right. This guy starts talking about, you know, they, they couldn't play baseball. All he wanted to do was play baseball and uh, couldn't play with the white kids. So they created like a, a Negro league just for kids like in the town. And there was a day after a while where the Negro, Negro, Negro kids played the white kids. And the black kids won. So what happened? Not the kids, not the white kids, but the white parents came off the stands and started beating these black kids. This is the story he tells. He told some other story. I mean, simple stuff, right? That probably happened a zillion times. Walking down the street in the middle of the summer with his mother, feeling thirsty, saying, Mom, I'm going to get a drink from this drinking fountain. No, son, you, you can't do that. That's for white folks. I mean, this is how this experience opened. And I think that for a lot of a lot of us, I don't think we realize that just in one person's lifetime, so much has changed. And, and yet you did hear many in the black community, the, the group that came, um, acknowledging that, right? There isn't, I don't think there's a feeling on the part of most black Americans that, you know, nothing at all has changed, right? Everybody acknowledges that, you know, this year is better than it was in 2010 and 2010 was better than the year 2000. But at the same time, I think there's still this feeling of, you know, we're not, uh, fully accepted and, and how you reconcile the two, how you reconcile the fact that one of these uh, African-American participants would say that America is both better than it was last year, but at the same time, nothing's changed in 400 years. Hmm. It's a very difficult thing to do. And it leaves you as someone who's not black trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, what is it exactly that you, that, that I can do for you? You know, if, if it hasn't changed uh, that much since Martin Luther King Jr., like, well, what do you, what do you expect me to do? And it's, it's very frustrating. And I could see it in the faces of, of the people, uh, the white folks who came. And even of some of the, you know, we had some white pastors speak to the group. And you can tell they're just completely befuddled, right? They're just this feeling of like, you know, I want to help, but, but, but what are we talking about here? How do we actually make this better? What, what more could be done if what's being done hasn't fixed the problem until now? And and with the um, with the white participants, uh, granted, it's only like a two day trip, and you you can only change your worldview so much over the course mm-hmm. of forty eight hours. But in trips like this, where you spend a lot of time with with the other folks, like even um, when we were on the Israel trip together, which we mentioned at the start of the episode, no, don't cancel me, please, uh, dear listeners. <laughs> <laughs> been there, been there, done that. Jeff. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, we had amazing conversations. We Our trip was a little bit longer in Israel. And, and I should also note, um, we were also spent some time in the West Bank. And, um, you know, there were rich conversations, a lot of different perspectives. And I even talked to Demir about this on a somewhat regular basis where we're like, hey, that trip, there are things that we've been able to hold on, insights that have really mm-hmm. stayed with us. Do you feel like the white participants from this Minneapolis trip by the end of it, did you were they able to make a jump? 
I, I do think so. Um, and there were some people on the trip who were especially conservative and, and we actually re- recruited them for that reason. You know, one of our, our specialties is bringing people together who don't usually get together. And so in this trip, we were definitely trying to kind of get the ends of the spectrum. So we brought some pretty right wing, uh, you know, American evangelicals from the Midwest. And um, I'm thinking of two gentlemen in particular, and both of them were, were pretty transformed by it, right? There was, there was still some concern about, you know, what does this mean practically? But uh, voiced, I mean, starting almost immediately that, that this, is, this issue is, is, is much different than they thought. And I think what surprised them the most was that the African-American community, you know, for all of the existentialism that's around this, this whole issue, right? I mean, these massive topics about slavery and oppression and injustice. I mean, the African-Americans they met were pretty awesome people, right? They're just regular people. And even when, when they're saying things that they disagree with, they're saying it in such a way that the, the white people are saying, actually, that kind of makes sense. I think the kicker was, you know, we went <clears throat> on the on the second day, we went to a church, a black Baptist church, uh, an old one there in uh, Minneapolis. And we had a couple of the local pastors out. And these are people, these are not, you know, they're not like in mixed churches, you know, half black, half white. This is like pure black church. All their members are black. Uh, they, they were Baptists. I think one of them was from the Church of God in Christ. And they got up kind of one after the other and gave um, just little talks about themselves and how they see things. And I think that the white participants were really shocked to find that these people were, were by and large, very like-minded. These are not people trying to destroy the United States. These are not people who want to, you know, you know, attack white people or start a race war. These people just want some, some very basic things and by and large are, 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 are with them. You know, they're, they want to see, uh, good things for both sides. And I think until that point, some people in the white community are thinking, you know, this is a, this is a zero sum proposition here, right? If I'm, if I go on to this side, then, then it's like, that's it, right? I'm, I'm kind of leaving my team and all the things that I, I claim to stand for and embracing this, this like revisionist narrative. And in fact, they realize that there's actually not as much distance between us as, as maybe we originally thought. And I think these guys, and uh, all the all the people who came from the white community walked away feeling like this is we can do something on this. And they're going back to their different cities to, to try to curate similar experiences, at the very least, just to reach out and, and talk to these people. Let me tell you, this guy, Spike Moss, this was the this was the moment that kind of blew me away. Um, this guy pulls me aside. This was, again, our, our kind of patriarch, our, our guide for the for the trip. Um, he pulls us aside pulls me aside during one of the sessions because I'm he and I are both standing in the back. He says, listen, I just want to tell you one thing. I know you don't think there's this is really a big deal. You just bringing some people out for a couple of days to Minneapolis. He said, but I've been doing this for 64 years or whatever the number was, he said. He said, um, this is the very first time that anybody has ever done this, ever, any or anything like this. He says, all these people, all these pastors in this community, nobody has ever come just to walk with us and listen to us. And he, I mean, he went on and on. He had a little tear in his eye. I was shocked. I'm thinking Philos of all people. I mean, we're not even in this space, you know, and we're, we're the ones who, who, who catalyze this conversation. And I think that people from the white community left thinking, wow, if that's, if that's really all it takes to get this process started, we, you know, we can do this. And so there was a feeling of, you know, moving from a passive spectator to kind of an active participant in this whole conversation, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, so what, what, what I'm hearing though, you know, like, and I'm, you know, from, from my experience, I think it's, it's that we live actually a pretty segregated life that the two communities actually don't mix very much. I mean, mm-hmm. anecdotally, that's true in my life. That's quite true, you know? Um, and it's, and I mean, the, the complicating factor ends up being that so much of it is socioeconomic as well. Right. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. this is not to minimize uh, the reality of race or to subsume everything into some sort of economic determinism, but it's the fact that also socioeconomically it's, it's that, right. It's that the, mm-hmm. the black experience, the, the, you know, the uh, you're talking about the black church and, and just sort of, you know, it, it's, it is almost, as you said, it's, it's intercommunal dialogue in a way that 
is easy to miss in uh, right when you talk just about uh, America as such, because we we all think we're we're one. So you know, you, our experience is one. But it's it's the fact that there's a sort of self segregating element to it, right? Is that is that is that is that sort of what the part it's of your 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 coming away from this is like that Definitely. that segregation the self segregation is is a is a persistent reality? It's true, yes. And it's I think it's natural. I'm not somebody who, you know, gets on a soapbox and scolds people for hanging out with people they like. It's it's you know, people I'm a big culture guy. So I actually think it's quite healthy that people, you know, enjoy their culture and, and like to meet with people who are part of their culture and preserve it and protect it and celebrate it and all that. That's it's natural. But I think that when, when these kinds of things happen, we realize, wow, we're, we are really living in two different cultures. Now there's tons of exceptions, right? Of people who cross the boundaries quite often, but I think for, for a lot of people, especially in the, in the white, like conservative world, Christian world, whether Catholic or Protestant, you live in an echo chamber, right? Not only racially, but, but religiously. And, and it's part, it's, especially when it's your profession, right? When you work at a nonprofit or in a church ministry, there's just not a lot of opportunity for, for getting outside and meeting people. So, you know, one of the, my takeaways, kind of a meta takeaway was that for, for this issue, as in so many other issues, one of the most important things is just showing up, just taking an interest and showing up. And I think that if there was a movement, you know, everybody wants the silver bullet on this issue, right? All these different reforms and Surely there's tons of things that, that need to be done. But I think if, if even I would say, you know, if 20 major white leaders in, in the, whether it's in the Christian world or, or outside of it, just kind of got that particular bee in their bonnet and said, you know what, I'm going to spend three days and go find out what this is all about. Amazing, amazing things would happen. I can't predict what they would be, but it's little things like that can can really change this whole issue. So, so Robert, I mean, as you know, uh, I, I, I like talking, uh, Demir and I love talking about issues and, you know, intellectualizing things and all that. And that's why we like going to dialogue meetings where some of this intellectual work, let's say happens. But I think like, I'm also a pessimist in a way about dialogue because I think it's good from an analytical standpoint it's intellectually stimulating and especially if you're a writer and and you're you're part of the public discourse you can bring some of those insights into your work in a way that has tangible impact great but you know looking at, um you know you look at uh, initiatives like seeds of peace in the middle east where there's a lot of i think sometimes naive hope that if only this idea if only we could bring the two sides together, people are fundamentally good once you just actually meet meet them and talk to them and they can get to know each other, build these bonds, transcend the self-segregation of these communities, and then you have better outcomes. But what we find out is it doesn't often translate into better outcomes because there's something overwhelming about the structural obstacles. That's certainly the case in Israel-Palestine. It's true mm-hmm. in a different way, obviously, here in the U.S. where and, – and so I guess one question I would have and it's something I think about quite a bit is – so there's this whole now um, fad about like bearing individual witness. It's almost this kind of neo-Christian approach to, uh, which is mm-hmm. basically the woke, the woke church let's call it mm-hmm. where it's about white people um, checking their privilege and absolving themselves of sin and declaring their intention to do good. And mm-hmm. and it is somewhat it can be similar to actual Christianity in the sense that you can sometimes talk to conservative Christian leaders where they're really committed to being, let's say, not racist or less racist on an individual level. And they want to impart that message to their congregation. But then we're still left with the systemic and structural issues that are really about policy change, that even if you have all these great conservative Christian leaders who are getting better, they're talking to their black brothers and sisters, if they're not actually willing to vote for reforms that address, and putting aside even, you know, um, systemic racism, uh, to use that term, 
And just to even talk about something which I think is more ex- more accepted by conservatives and liberals alike, which is that there is there is structural inequality in in the class sense, in the socioeconomic sense, that um, a disproportionate number of black people in this country are poor. So even if you don't want to get into the the causal power of racism, if is is it racism that's causing the inequality? People can debate that, but at the very least, we can agree that. The fact that too many black people are poorer than their white counterparts creates a cycle of poverty on the local level that becomes very difficult to to um, to to address. How, how I mean, so there's a lot there, obviously. But what, what would mm-hmm. you say to that? Well, I think you know I agree with you, and I think that was actually part of the exhaustion, the part of some of the black participants was okay. We're going to talk, but like, are we going to actually? do anything. And that, that was a question even up until the last day. So without going into all of the follow-up stuff that we've been doing, I think um, we were very clear at the beginning that this is meant to lead to action. We even said that in, in the invites that, you know, we don't, we're not going to prescribe anything and Philos is not going to be advocating necessarily for legal and political change. It's just not the kind of organization we are, but we do want those kinds of things to happen. And people who came, came, under those auspices. So maybe it was a little self-selecting and that the people who were in the dialogue actually were hoping it led to tangible results too. And we, we did another little uh, clever thing that the people we invited were, were actually, uh, at least on the white side, more active in, in local and state uh, issues than federal issues, because at the end of the day, so much of this happens, uh, you know, beneath the federal government in terms of the changes in, in law and policy. So, there have been there, and I won't get into it because it's it's kind of still happening. But there, but there have been a couple of tangible things that have happened. Um, having said that, I agree with you that unless you know in a big way, people are willing to put their money where their mouth is, then uh, you know the black community is not going to care. Even people who you know are ready uh, to partner with the white community. But there is one fundamental difference between uh, this conflict, uh, if you want to call it that, and let's say the Israeli-Palestinian or some of these other conflicts I deal with on the other side of the ocean. And that is, again, not to you know be a one-trick pony, but uh, it's religion. So when Palestinians and Israelis get together, they share a land, they share a kind of a patriarch and Abraham, but 99% of them, actually that's a real number, are either Jews or Muslims, right? There's a couple of Christians in the mix, but these people are coming not only from different kind of, you know, ethno-national backgrounds, but they don't even have a common discourse. You know, Abraham, Abrahamic religion, this very thin thing that people talk about is, is pretty much all they have. And it doesn't, it doesn't yield much fruit. And I think you see that in other, I mean, you could, Demir, you mentioned the Balkans, right? The, the fact that Orthodox Christians and, and, and Roman Catholic uh, Croatians um can't see eye to eye. There's, there's a million reasons I'm sure, but I'm sure part of it is that they don't actually have a kind of a a common identity. There's no common identity. The Venn diagram is just two circles near each other. And I think in this case, especially because so many of the kind of the right wing Christians are evangelical Protestants and so many of, you know, virtually all or most of the black community are either active members in some kind of Protestant church or they've grown up in them. There is, there's something here, there's, there's an X factor that doesn't exist in other places. So in, in that commonality, it's not just, it's not just discursive, right? It's not like a rhetorical comment. I actually think it can lead to, to very tangible outcomes that kind of take that package of shared ideas and, and mobilize it. There is one other part though here that I do want to mention that was a little uncomfortable for me. It's, and it, it gets at one of the other complications here with the white community which is, uh, and you mentioned socioeconomics. One of the things I mentioned, and no doubt it's because of my own personal background early in the trip was, you know, as somebody who comes from, you know, a lower, a lower strata of the white community, you know, I grew up in Rust Belt, Buffalo and Syracuse. My dad's a maintenance man. Nobody in my family went to college. It's, it's not atypical, right? I come from the op- opioid crisis world. That's my world. And 
you know, for someone like me and I, you know, I'm, there's millions of white people behind me, many of whom voted for Donald Trump to, to encounter this dialogue. It's just, it's, it's jarring, right? Because you're told that you have privilege. You're told that you have advantage. You're told that you need to go out of your way to lift up these, these other people who are not actually part of your community necessarily. And yet there's no place for you at the table, right? Nobody cares about your lack of quote unquote privilege. And, and I think that, you know, it's kind of turning it on its head, right? There's a lot of obstacles for the black community and feeling ready to trust, you know, white Americans who say that they want to help. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of white Americans and they're precisely the people who need to kind of be brought on board here who don't see an on-ramp, right? They don't see their own cause reflected, the cause that led them to vote for the president that so many people in the black community hate. And that, um, I think, is a barrier of some kind, especially just given the political moment that we're in, for tangible action, right? Because some of these people in the white community are thinking, look, there's just as much to be done. I mean, they say this rightly or wrongly, just as much to be done for poor whites as there is, as there is for poor blacks. And, and what do we, do we not count or are we chop liver? And so answering that question um, may not be, uh, you know, morally necessary, right? I don't think the black community needs to feel bad about the fact that, you know, there's white people who are poor. That's not their problem. But I do think that there does need to be an answer for such people because there's so many of them and because they're perceived to be the obstacle to this whole uh, conversation about progress. So, Robert, you know, something you said earlier also, though, um, when you started out, you were talking about how black American, you know, experience um, creates a people within the American experience that is different from the white American experience who aren't, who are, the, the peoplehood is different, right? Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, what you're saying in this last round about religion and about that commonality. And it's just something that, I mean, I think I, I picked it up largely, both from our former editor at the magazine and, and working with Walter Russell Mead. It's, it's that the, the core of American identity, right, is, is a kind of open church, right? It's that it's the, the, the genius of America and America's ability to generate Americans, which you know, your work in the Middle East, you know that that's no small feat. I know from Europe, it's no small feat. Like identity is, it's, it's rooted in different things, even as you said about the Balkans. It's, 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 it's not the fact that America is even expressly Christian. It's that it's religious. Hmm. And so, uh, that, that, that allows, you know, the creation of, of this Americanism. But then at the same time, you know, point taken, uh, Irish come, Italians come, you know, now you have, you have a broader Hispanic community and, and they're, they're becoming, well, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, white Americans, uh, at, and even Asians, right? I mean, it's, it's, they're becoming the majority American thing. And the, the crux of it is, is that black Americans have been, been denied this. So talk a little bit maybe about that. Cause I mean, I, I know your conclusion is, again, you you keep coming back to this idea about, religion as, as, as the way, the bridge. I don't know. Can you, can you, can you think through that a little bit for me? Cause what we're talking about really to sum up in a way is like you have a distinct people that are not being, well, again, assimilated. It's a net, it's a word that people don't like to hear because we, mm-hmm. we celebrate diversity and pluralism and the rest of this. But, but in a way we're talking about a failure of assimilation to the American ideal or the American idea, not the ideal, the idea. Um, and while religion works for other groups, for some reason, there's a gap here that hasn't been bridged. And so, I don't know, talk a little bit about that. Hmm. That's a, wow, Demir, that's a, that's a really tough question. And um, it's one that I've been batting around in my head, right? There's so many paradoxes that I've encountered in the very brief time that I've been, thinking through this. And, and this is certainly one of them, right? What's the connection here between this feeling of, okay, there's actually a common language. There's a common set of ideas that we can draw upon, but at the same time, these experiences, um, 
are, are so different. I don't, I don't know that I have the answer to that, you know, not to be too anticlimactic, but it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult thing. I think it's exacerbated by the fact that, you know, the, the church speaking very broadly has actually been um, in many cases in, in American history, one of the primary uh, facilitators of what we're calling assimilation, right? You, you join a, you can come as an Italian American, you join the local Catholic church. There's a mix of people fresh off the boat like you, but there's also people who've been established and there's a certain, um, you know, uh, what's the word kind of a mixing effect that the church performs. And part of the problem is that the, the white church in, in a very conscious way, and there's some very specific historical examples, uh, purposely, kept the black people out of their churches, right? So much so that the black people had to go start the black church, right? All the different black churches. And it's, you know, the black church since became, you know, I'd sometimes describe it as like the, the one piece of sovereign territory that the black Americans have, right? It's the one place where that the white people don't control. It's, it's their space. And, and I think that, that has exacerbated the problem quite a bit because, you know, one of the trends you see in the American Hispanic community is tons of them becoming evangelical. Why is that? Because they show up in, you know, uh, San, San, San Antonio and they, you know, a friend at work invites them to a local church. They go, it's mostly maybe white people or, or not, but they feel welcome and they kind of mix and suddenly their kids are speaking English with no accent, right? There's, and I think that the church actually played a role in, in the, in, and blocking the black community from fully assimilating that way. And it's one of the things, you know, I know the Southern Baptist convention, the biggest Protestant dimension, the denomination in America has, um, you know, kind of taken it on the chin for this in, in recent years uh, for the role that it played uh, specifically in, in keeping the black community out. But beyond that, I have to say that, you know, I don't have uh, a lot of answers and, and, and not least of all, because, you know, when you're poor, whether you're white or black, a lot of times you don't go to church, right? You don't really have time. You're just too busy trying to survive. So I think that also, you know, the people maybe who need to be uh, reached the most are not actually in the places where I might think they are, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Robert, you so know what might have, might have, uh, a lot uh, of this, if you, if you can't tell. <laughs> yeah. Go Sean. Yeah. <laughs> Robert, I was just thinking, you know, what might have helped you um, reach some definitive answers. I think you were missing something on the trip. What's that? I think you. I think you needed a, a token Muslim. <laughs> I think having one of them would have really added so, something. It's it's funny you say that. <laughs> my 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 partner, I said, and I said this early. I said we need a Muslim or a Jew, like just to break it up, right? To almost, I don't know whether it's the comic relief or the <laughs> kind of the you know the 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 soft place between the, the two the two rocks I, that that would have been amazing and it's not that I didn't try I invited <laughs> a couple people on both sides but just didn't work out that way that would have been really awesome right to to like have that third perspective like well you know you said that you said that but you know get yeah it, it's really too bad that didn't work out <laughs> indeed I agree so so Robert I mean um, talk a little bit now about uh, about Philos I guess. Um, your st- your focus. I mean, your work, your 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 life work has been you know doing the Middle East stuff. How are you? Uh, I mean, programmatically, how's this? Has it changed how you're you're seeing? You know, we started talking a little bit about that. That like you know we're all foreign policy guys. We look outside. Is are you? I mean, again to 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 preface this, I I it's it's remarkable how involved and empathetic you are in your work out there has, has this changed your approach in any way? Um, this experience about like thinking about the rest of the world? I think, uh, that's a great question. Also something I'm still sorting through. I, there is one, there's a very, I won't, I won't get into the details. It's still hush hush, but there's a very real possibility that there'll be a brand new, uh, organization, uh, coming out of this, you know, from top to bottom, African-American focused on leadership, connection between America and Africa. Uh, it's, it's actually super cool. Um, it was in the works before all this started. It's, it's essentially spinning out a lot of our African-American affairs work into a brand new entity. But, um, but we'll, we'll come back to that uh, another time. I think in terms of, you know, just in general, 
I think um, it definitely, well, two things. One is I think I've seen the need to be much more, I need to double down on the work that we already are doing in the African-American community, right? There, there are so many great leaders and we met some of them on the trip, both the participants and, and some of the people who we saw who just need to be involved in what we're just, just great leaders. You know, you sort of meet somebody and you walk away thinking, wow, that person is just really special. And uh, I think I just need to do a better job of, uh, you know, being proactive about that, just sort of pipelining people from, from, from these sorts of uh, programs that, that serve the black community into the work, the trips and all that stuff that we already do. So that's one. The second thing I would say is that I think it's made me a little more humble um, I like to think of myself as a humble person, which of course is a contradiction in terms, but that kind of tells you everything. No, we agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you do. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I was made more humble just to the point I made earlier about, you know, I focus so much on other people's problems. And look, I've been called a white savior more times than, than I can count. Um, and, you know, I, I joke about it, laugh about it. But I think this it reminded me, I guess, of the skeletons in our own closets, right? I think we've, we've all, if, if you don't work on this issue and if you're not part of the black community, I think there's a tendency to just say, well, that's kind of over. Like, right. There was, we, you know, there was Jim Crow and then there wasn't. And now we have Barack Obama. Like it's, it's done. That was like, we got a black president. Okay. That, that whole thing is finished. Close the account. Um, it's not finished. And I think that as an American, it's important, especially when I'm going abroad, right? I'm, I'm in all these different countries showing up as kind of an ambassador of the, you know, the biggest, or, you know, most wealthy, powerful country in the world. I think it's important that, that I'm not only aware of what's going on in my country, but actually involved in it to some degree, right? It's, it's hypocritical for me to do uh, anything else. So, so that was, that was part of the second outcome. And I think the second part of the second part is that it, it, it changes the way it can't help, but change the way that I see some of these conflicts that I'm dealing with, even ones that I'm super familiar with. I mean, you mentioned the Israeli Palestinian conflict, right? It's there, there are lots of differences. I know some people, it's like a one-to-one -one correlation between black people and Palestinians. It's, it's not, but I think there are for sure some similarities. And I think just even, thinking through the African-American issue has, you know, it just opens doors and windows in one's brain uh, as to different approaches, more effective approaches on, on other issues. And um, I just find in general that intellectually it's very useful to be doing one thing and then to take a break from it and do something totally different, right? Just turn on a different light in a different room in your, in your head and uh, that's really what this trip did. And then that, that process of just kind of being dislocated, right, and just put in a whole different frame of mind in a context where, you know, you see me on a trip, you, the kinds of trips that I do. I know all the people. It's, it's, my, it's my world. I, you know, I'm comfortable. And in this trip, I was as much a participant as I was the host. I was made uncomfortable. And it was a very, uh, I think, important experience for me to kind of have everything jumbled up and then let it settle back down and, and take stock, stock of the whole thing. So I'm, I'm really glad we did it. It was definitely out on a limb. I, you know, I, I told both of you uh, in the run up to it and, and, and it felt like, you know, what the heck am I doing? You know, I don't even know what I'm talking about here, but I uh, definitely think that it was worth doing. In fact, so much so that we had up until today, a follow-up trip to Tulsa, uh, planned. We had people coming and it was a very similar sort of thing. We're going to talk about Black Wall Street and all the race riots that happened in Tulsa. And uh, Oklahoma got put on the list of, uh, you know, these states where you come back, you have to quarantine for two weeks. So we, we canceled that. But it's uh, hopefully the beginning of lots of lots of new things, strange things for me, things I'm not used to. But I like uh, I like that. I like being out of my elements. It's a good thing. And, and Robert, you know, I'll just say, um, you know, one one thing I really like about you is that you're you're always calm and measured, and I don't think I've ever seen you get frustrated or or angry, even though you deal with rather complicated conflicts. And there's something like refreshing about like having a conversation about racial divides in this country, but we've mostly avoided like the woke silliness. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, Demir also kind of warned me. <laughs> He's like, Shaddy, <laughs> let's, let's, let's kind of, let's not get into that too much, which is, I think is really good advice because um, I guess this will probably come out um, tomorrow. So people will know that the Harper's letter and all that controversy is going mm-hmm. on this week. But it, it sounds like what, what you did on the trip and the kind of engagement that you're having with people on the ground it seemed so detached from the, the symbolic silliness mm. of liberal elite discussions around these issues. And I don't know if that's your own sense, too. I mean, you are on Twitter, mm-hmm. so I think you've seen some of it go oh, yeah. on. And I guess you don't you tried to not get too involved yourself in, in those kinds of um, yeah. of, oftentimes absurd debates. But you're at least aware of it. I mean, do you feel like these are different worlds? It's funny. I almost tweeted something exactly along those lines a couple of days ago. You know, I Twitter is its own universe. Um, and if there weren't so many important people who have decision making power, I would say that it's a total waste of time. Right. What happens there seems completely divorced from the world that we live in and the, the just complete. What's the word? I mean, like hysteria right, of, of, of commentary on Twitter. And I don't know if it's because of the small format, right, that you got to kind of get everything in <laughs> as, as punchy and, you know, as, as accessible and interesting as possible or what it is, but it's so unhelpful. And I just, I, I, you know, I have so many tweets that I, that I draft and then delete. I'm, most of the tweets I, I write are deleted before I send them. <laughs> These days, it's like, you guys are embarrassing, Right. It, it's just silly. It's childish. It's immature. You got to be cool. You know, like you just got to be cool. You can't be flipping out about it just in general in life. You can't be flipping out. All, like it's OK to hear things you disagree with. And it's clearly it's it's not the the common path. But I just I watch these debates and I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Right. Like you would never say that to that person's face. And yet you're here on Twitter like, you know, you want to go? You want to go? Right. Meanwhile, these people are all like bird chested and chicken legs. You know, they're not, they're not going to do anything. Right. And my rule of thumb is, and everybody who works with me and for me knows that if no one's going to die, it's not a big deal. And that's literally my rule. Like I don't get freaked out unless somebody's life is actually in jeopardy. All of it's just words. We're just throwing words around here. Right. They're but the problem something. No, but. I, 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 before Shadi jumps in, though, I got to say, Robert, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really glad you're, you're here with us on this podcast, because I honestly, this is to me before before Shadi jumps in with with the, with the current thing on, on all of this. That's <laughs> exactly right from where I'm sitting. We just did a, a newsletter thing about this a couple of days ago where we discuss this. And, and it is. I think that the, that last thing that you said for me is exactly this. It's not a revolution until people are actually uh, bleeding in the streets from it. <laughs> right? I, 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 yeah. I really, really hold to that. So to me, this is in many ways, it's, it's the toxicity of, of social media that quite frankly is another reason why I'm glad for this trip that you took us on to Israel that birthed this podcast, which has been for me at least a real refuge from, mm. from the nonsense of, of, of that, 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 damned, damned, damned existence on social media, quite frankly. And it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the ability to sort of sit down and have conversations like this that in fact show me exactly what you said is the, is the deep silliness of, of what goes on in that world. Not- yeah, but you guys, both of you guys in particular are pretty awesome. I love following you both on Twitter. Like you guys, I'm liking, I'm liking stuff. It's, it's good stuff. It's like, it's the right tone. You don't get too hyped up, but you're taking like principled positions and, and, and dismantling some of the silliness along the way. I love it. I love, I love your guys' feeds. Well, thank you. Uh, Well, that, that sort of puts us in a difficult position because I mean, we're doing, I guess we're doing good work on Twitter. You like what we're saying, but we also like if we're doing good on Twitter, should we keep on doing whatever we're doing or should we find yes. a way? <laughs> no, no, no. We should find no. a way to make everything like this. Robert, the other thing we're doing is this newsletter. And honestly, what we hope to do soon is just sort of we're taking, you know, these conversations that started with just me and Shadi on the news on the on the uh, podcast and then, you know, have guests like you on. We're going to have guests onto the sort of written discussions as well. For me, anyway, okay. it's a it's a process of getting 
off of social media as much as possible, or at least like not wasting my energies, my creative energies, which are limited in any, <laughs> in any 24 hour period and wasting them for, for, you know, throwing them into this, into this sewer, quite frankly, is what it is. <laughs> I, I don't want to put Robert on the spot, but, um, he, he may in fact already be a reader of the newsletter. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember. So Robert, as you, as you might suspect, like with our, with the interface, for the for the newsletter we can track stats and we can see who signs up unless i'm imagining it unless i really just wanted you to be a subscriber i have a feeling i saw your name as someone who subscribed did i just make that up no i think i do i think i do i'll be honest i haven't read them all but i do <laughs> pretty sure i get them yeah good, good good no i it's a it's just a you know the common email problem of course it's not, okay i love i love uh, your commentary it's, it's, you know, the bemused Arab American and the cranky Croatian. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's called, that's called a pull quote right there. Robert, that's thanks it. so much for joining us. This was awesome. And, uh, you know, we'll have you on again soon to talk about, uh, new and exciting adventures that you're, you're plotting and, uh, just help us sort of, I don't know, work through some of, all these very, very naughty and complicated issues. It's always great hey. to have a friend like you on. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. Yeah. Great to have you. Anytime. You guys are awesome. I love it. Keep it going. Thanks. Thanks. Talk to you later. <laughs> Okay. Bye. All right, Robert.